Welcome to Teaching Peace. This series of conversations is the result of a collaboration between New York City Council of Mennonite Churches, Groundswell, and Brooklyn Peace Center. We begin each episode by acknowledging the land upon which these organizations sit. We recognize that we are located in Lenape Hoking, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Lenape people. We acknowledge the Lenape community, their elders, both past and present, as well as future generations. This acknowledgement is part of our ongoing work to dismantle the legacies of settler colonialism and white supremacy. On Teaching Peace, we engage in conversation with clergy and clinicians, artists and activists, and community leaders and practitioners to explore various pedagogies of peace building from across disciplines and socioeconomic and geographic contexts. For the first half of this season, we were in conversation with leaders of peace centers from around the world. As we begin the second half of this season, we are talking with a variety of peacemakers. My name is Jason Storbachen. I serve at Manhattan Mennonite Fellowship as pastor and as co-director of Brooklyn Peace Center. And I'm Addie Banks, executive director of the Groundswell Group and chair of the Education Committee of the New York City Council of Mennonite Churches and a former pastor. In this episode of Teaching Peace, we are in conversation with Iris DeLeon Hartshorn. Iris is uh, a powerful peacemaker. She has served Mennonite Central Committee since 1996 to, to 2007, and currently uh, Mennonite Church USA from 2007 to the present in various leadership roles. Previously, the denominations, sorry about that, just had a blip. Previously, Iris served as the denomination's director of transformative peacemaking in Portland, Oregon, uh, she, where she's now a resident. And also today, she is associate executive director for operations, a new position that encapsulates the roles of chief of staff and key advisor to the executive director of Mennonite Church USA. She has been a strong advocate for racial and gender justice in the church and its related institutions. Her background intersects with many cultures and you will see some of that interesting intersectionality today. Welcome Iris to Teaching Peace. Thank you, glad to be here. We always start with this question. How do you define peace? Yeah, when I saw that question, I, I, you know, your first thought is, oh, you know, some easy answer, but it's, there's not an easy answer to that question. So I'm going to try to explain my thinking about what that, what peace means. Um, and I always kind of think through the lens of shalom. Mm -hmm. And when I'm talking about shalom, I'm talking about the interconnections of creation, humanity, and God. Um, that, you know, in the end of it all is how we are all reconciled together, all those three elements. And, and that happens in many different ways. Many different people take 
different pieces of that to work <laughs> at. But I think in the end, that is what God is calling us to. I don't think peace is passive <laughs> because for me, if there's no justice, there is no peace. So if, if, you know, peace is kind of, people think, oh, it's peace, everyone gets along, it's all wonderful, um, but it's not that easy. Hmm. Uh, one of my favorite books is from Walter Wink, The Powers That Be. And I, I just want to read this one part where you know, it just seems, uh, well, I must have, okay, well, I lost that one, but Basically, what it says is part of the job of peace is bringing out the conflict. Yes. Because if you don't bring out the conflict, you cannot get rid of the poison that is underneath that conflict. And if you can't get rid of that poison, the conflict continues or the injustice continues, whatever that conflict um, what the bottom piece of that whole conflict is. And people may see that, well, that's a mean thing. That's, that's not very nice. But I think if you really love people, even people that you may not agree with, if you really love them, wouldn't you want to free them from that poison, from that conflict? And, and so that's why peace is such a... It's a strange word in the sense that most people see it as something idyllic, something peaceful. And I'm not saying that isn't part of it. I think that there is such a thing, even as peacemakers, that at times we have to still our own hearts. We have to find that inner peace for ourselves. We have to find ways of letting go and being content um, for what we can do. And being able to let go of what we can't. And so there's a, a different kind of piece for that. But when I'm talking about it as being an activist or advocating, it is not always the ideal like running on the grass, you know, happy and, and flower in the air. Yeah, flowers. Yeah, reminds me of the flower tiles. Yeah. <laughs> you know, going to San Francisco with flowers in your hair, you know. I uh, I wish it was that, but it is. It's tough work. Yeah. Wow. I really appreciate uh, the language about how part of the job of peace is to bring out conflict. Yeah. There's so many layers going on there. And kind of a follow-up question to how do you define peace is how do you define enemy? That was, when I saw that one, that was also um, complex difficult answer because if we really again if i go back to shalom and if i really see every human being created by god how can they be my enemy i may not agree with them i may think even their actions are horrible um may even think there has to be some discipline it, you know for what they, they've done, but it's hard for me to call them an enemy uh, because they are a child of God. They were created by God. And I think one of the hard lessons I've learned was uh, when 
We adopted our two children who were severely abused their first five years of life. The person that did that to them, it was, it was hard for me to see that person as anything but evil. And when you start to learn that person's own story of how they were abused, how they were neglected, how they were treated, um, it's, it's not an excuse for what they did or it's not an excuse of what they become. But we have to be compassionate to understand those things influence people. And sometimes people uh, at that early age and, and how they're formed and what happens to them is beyond their control. And if whether they become mentally ill after that or psychotic or whatever happens, um, or, you know, in their life, I have to remember they were created God's image. They were created as a child of God. And what happened to them was what hum human beings did to them. Mm. Not what God did to them. Yeah. And, you know, I look, uh, <laughs> I look at Trump. I don't know if this, I could say this or not. Sure. I look at Trump, uh, you know, and the things he's done and it really makes me angry yeah but in my mind i'm thinking what happened to him as a child that made him the way he was yeah. something happened and it makes me sad and some, some right i don't some... really like to call people enemy i i i'd rather say i don't agree with them yeah. Um, yeah. i you know i and I may, and they may be, I do think there is evil in the world. They may be evil, but down, when it comes down to it, I also have to tell myself they were created by God. Their actions, looking at their actions and naming actions is evil, but recognizing the, the person who is God's image bearer, that helps to separate animosity, anger, and hatred towards others. Right. Oh. Yeah. And Iris, your own story, I always call you one of my women of hope because your own storied past is very powerful and how you were shaped and formed by the various kinds of experiences you had as a woman who now is Native American, as a woman who grew up as Mexican, your own experiences um, basically have brought you to a different kind of place than someone like a Donald Trump. You were grew up mm. Catholic, you dabbled with the Presbyterians and the Baptists, uh, but you eventually found your way to the Mennonites, to the Anabaptists. Share with us a little bit of your journey to the Mennonite church and what has kept you. You were, okay. you were <laughs> enlightened and you were disillusioned, but you have stayed. Mm. Well, let me first say about my Catholic upbringing. One of the things I am so grateful about my Catholic upbringing, and I think that has grounded me, um, and this is where I, I have my tension with the Anabaptist uh, belief around purity, I'll just say. Uh, the one thing that Catholics <laughs> kind of grind in your mind is that you're a human being. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's important to remember. 
Right. Yeah. You are not perfect. You, you are not, not God. God. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. So, like, when things come up, like in the Mennonite church, when people say somebody committed abuse or this or that, and people are shocked. I hate to say I'm not always shocked. Yeah. Because, okay, well, you know what? They're human being. Yeah. They messed up. And sometimes I can actually see like people that have those tendencies um and 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 yet we have a uh we have a church and i'm not saying the whole church but this purity piece hides a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and people hide under it mm-hmm. uh, instead of admitting yeah i am not perfect I have sinned. And 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 the piece about the Catholics that taught me is it's okay to admit your sin. It's okay to confess your sin. It's not a bad thing. Right. Um, But anyway, I I did I I left the Catholic Church when I was about 16. Uh I actually want to become a nun. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Because I've always felt this devotion to God. And I really knew I wanted to do something with that. But I remember going to the priest where the priests are to make an appointment to talk to them about what I had to do to eventually go into the convent. And the priest answered the door and he was as drunk as he could be. And uh, I came from an alcoholic family. My father was an alcoholic. And I looked at him, you want me to come in? I said, no, thanks. And I walked away saying, you know what? I get this at home. Why would I want it? Right. <laughs> there. <laughs> no, I, no thanks. Um, and so I left the Catholic church. And then I, I was looking for some place. And I was in high school. And one of my friends said, hey, come to the Presbyterian church. Um, I, I went there. And I stayed there for quite a few years, maybe three, four years. Um, and then I. As I was reading the Bible, I said, you know, I want to be baptized as a follower of Jesus. And I see, I didn't, I didn't know too much about other religions. And they said to me, well, your Catholic baptism is good enough. I said, yeah, but yeah, but I, I was a baby. I, that wasn't my decision. Yeah. I want to make that decision. And so. True they, Anabaptist. Yeah, they wouldn't <laughs> baptize me because of that. And yeah. this is the funny part of this whole story is my sister was going to Southern Baptist Church. Mm. And she says, oh, my pastor will baptize you. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't clued. I know this sounds strange, but you know, you have to think I'm 19 at that time. Right. I, I wasn't clued into baptism meant I was joining the church. <laughs> right. oh. I thought he was just going to baptize me. Wow, now you got church membership. So I go there, I talk to him. You know, he's, oh, yeah, he'd be happy to baptize me because I accept Jesus as my savior, the whole thing. I said, yes, and everything. So the big deal, and I get baptized. And then afterwards, he says, hey, everyone come up and, you know, greet our new member. (laughs) And I'm like, member? 
give her the right hand of fellowship and she's in. <laughs> yeah, start assigning you to committee work and there you go. And then, you know, my sister was going there and I thought, okay, well, I'll just check out the Southern Baptist. I'm a member now. And I met my husband there, so maybe it was oh. just to be, you know. Divine appointment, Iris. Yes. But, 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 you know, what the Southern Baptists gave me, though, was, was the appreciation for scripture. Yeah. And this was before what was considered the Southern Baptist takeover by the conservatives. Yeah. Um, so they weren't, it wasn't like it is now. Yeah. Um, but they gave me a real appreciation for the scripture. And so I do, you know, I want to say that I did appreciate that. I know all the different churches I went to, I did learn and I gained something from them. Right. Um, and I appreciate that. But the Mennonite church is something that just rang true to me around justice, especially around peace. That was so important to me. And I felt, you know, uh, before I got in that this is what they were all about. And, you know, no denomination is perfect. That's what I've learned along my road. Uh, you kind of pick the one that best fits you. And, you know, if you decide to stay, then you do the best that you can, knowing that, no, you know, that people will fail you. You will fail yourself. Um, but you stay committed. And that's kind of why I've stayed committed to, you know, the Mennonite church. And I've met so many wonderful people and I love them and their family. I mean, Addie, I mean, you and I have known each other for so long. You're so sisters. <laughs> I, you know, I know if I ran into problems, I'm in New York. I know I can call Addie. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's that family feeling and in the, and really the love I have felt by many people, you know, in the Mennonite church. Mm -hmm. um, and I know some people think I'm a thorn in the side and, you know, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. A loving one, a lovingly. And we need something to poke us and provoke us sometimes. Yeah. You, you've been on quite a journey, Iris, from Catholic to Presbyterian, the Baptist to a, a prophetic witness within the Mennonite church, within the, the church body. And you've been a key leader in organizing the Hope for the Future Conference, which gathers Anabaptist leaders of color. The next conference theme is collective trauma and resilience. Mm -hmm. What's the role of trauma in your work? I think... I think the well, the thing with trauma, well, is let me just say a couple of things about trauma itself, is that groups of people actually form stronger bonds around trauma yeah. than they do around victory. Yeah. Mm. Things. Um, and the trauma. You know, if we don't talk about the trauma, if we don't find ways to release the trauma, not just mentally, but even from our body, is that we will wound other people yes. with that trauma. 
And I think a good example is the Middle East. Um, I think, you know, when you look at what's going on in the Middle East, how could a group that was so oppressed um, and, and, you know, what happened to them in Germany turn around and, you know, oppress another group of people? It's because if you don't release that trauma, that's what happens. And like, so for people of color, I, I, I think, you know, we have a right to be angry. We have a right to ask for what we need. We have a right to no longer be colonized or to be oppressed. Um, but we don't have a right to harmonize other people in the process. That, that's, I, I'm not saying all people of color would agree with me on that, but that, but again, that's the other dynamic thing of peace. Um, but I do know the reality is that I have to admit, sometimes I know I probably have trauma, traumatized other people because mm -hmm. I'm, yeah. um, but I think that that's why this, this next hope for the future because of the pandemic, Black Lives Matter issue, um, the, the escalation of violence against black and brown people, the escalation of violence against the Asian community, there was a lot of stuff going on. And because we couldn't go out, we couldn't meet. Yeah, um, so much. It had built up. And I think for us being together, talking about this, letting it go, doing whatever we need to do to let it go yeah. um, is something we have to do. And then we have to keep keep moving forward. We can't allow that trauma to stop us. Yeah, trauma can be healed. That's the good news that we know that trauma can be healed. Yeah. Even multiply wounded communities can be healed. So mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Iris, there's often a tension between the work of reconciliation and the work of liberation. Where do you see that kind of tension in your work? Reconciliation oh, and liberation. That is like the toughest. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know. Um, oh, geez. Uh, I kind of, I'll just be honest. I just kind of had it to, to when people want to say, well, let's talk about reconciliation when they've done nothing yeah. um, around liberation, around change, even helping to change the system. It's like, you know, it's like, well, we'll treat you better, but we're not gonna change anything. And then even when, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. We have this hope for the future, you know, but we've also encouraged white leaders and white, and, and white allies to form their own group, to to work on their own stuff. And I, I mean, I've been to the top of the white leadership of white people saying this, you know, and, and what happens is they either want a person of color to organize it for them, <laughs> which tells me you still don't get what we're trying to tell you here. Um, and then if a person of color doesn't organize it for them, so then they want to blame us for not 
helping them. And at one point, white people have to take the responsibility and do their own learning, do their own organizing if they're serious about reconciliation. And I'm at the point of, I don't wanna talk about reconciliation unless I see that you're serious about liberation and working on these structures that oppress people. And I'm not just talking about people of color, I'm talking about LGBTQ people too. Yes. People that are disabled. I'm talking about the poor, mm. the whole system. If you're not serious, do not be talking to us about reconciliation. Yeah. It goes back to what you said earlier, no justice, no peace. Liberation right. comes before reconciliation. We and have it <laughs> so there is no reconciling because we haven't been conciled. <laughs> right. Right. Now, and I separate this from forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Only because forgiveness is for my own healing. You know what I mean? The release. Someone, but it doesn't mean I want to reconcile with them because they haven't done their work. And it also doesn't mean that they're forgiven. Just because you've forgiven them, they may right. not be able to receive that gift of forgiveness. Yet. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, that's so. the first part of the, the, the reconciliation piece. Don Shriver wrote a book on reconciliation. That's the first thing he says, that we can't do that until we do the forgiveness. You can't just be reconciled with somebody. You have to do that process to get to reconciliation. Right. Yeah. And before the reconciliation, before the liberation, comes the reckoning the thing. reckoning right. i mean yeah. that, that the comes reckoning. of bringing out of the, the conflict place. yeah you know that's what i'm bringing out the conflict and and getting that poison out of there yeah. so i'm no, interested don't run from the reckoning yes I, yeah so i have a question um no justice no peace liberation before reconciliation an emphasis on the vulnerable um one thing that has kept me in the Mennonite church uh, has been, like you said, Iris, this emphasis on justice and peace. And recently the abolition curriculum, which really names the slave legacy of policing, like historically roots it there. Um, where else in the, in the church are you seeing little maybe breakouts of liberation where there might be movement of the Holy Spirit that is this, this liberating spirit among the Mennonites, among the well, Christian you, church. You yeah. know, I, I want to say that there are a lot of pastors out there, and, and Jason, you're one of them. But I think also Melissa uh, Floor Bixler, yes. some of the work she is doing, mm -hmm. Isaac Viegas is doing, I mean, I could name a bunch of other pastors. Erica Leosimka, yes. I see it happening in communities, that they're working in their own communities. And, you know, we put this peace uh, justice fund to encourage churches to connect with peace and justice groups within their community. You don't necessarily have to be religious. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm trying to be, uh, you know, that hold similar values. And I said, and take the leadership of people of color 
in their communities. You know, don't go, you know, uh, for a long time, I think Mennonites sometimes they thought they had the answer and would, you know, go in and say, hey, you know, here we are and, you know, take leadership. No, I, I'm, I'm asking them, don't take the leadership. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but join people of color in your communities already doing the work. And I see a lot of churches doing that. That just gives me so much hope. Um, you know, and when we did the abolition curriculum, when that came out, uh, unfortunately, the first people you hear from are people that think you've gone off your rocker, you know? What is your teaching? Yeah. You know, they're trying to make it political. They want to, and here's the other piece about, about justice and peace is a lot of times the argument is we want to have an equal conversation. That's a false equivalency. Yeah, it is. You know, you can't, how do you have an equal, because they're saying, well, the police should be equally um, featured there, on uh, their side of it. So it. Yeah, right. That's not how exactly it's it works. Like, We're trying to stay in the truth, the historical truth, and not create fabricated uh, narratives. Exactly. I mean, you just have to look at the statistics. And you do the power analysis. How is it going to be exactly at unequal power? Mm -hmm. But I mean, but but this is the kind of arguments that you know people mm. want to get into, and and then you know, a lot of times it's like they want to criticize something they haven't even read. Don't even know what right. it means. Haven't done like, the work. You, you didn't even read it, you know. Mm. And what there might be a piece in there that might even touch your heart. How do you know if you don't even read it? You just want to criticize it. So that, that part is disheartening. But the other part is that I just see a lot of churches really committed to working in their communities. That yeah. gives hope. Yeah. Yeah. And that is such a great tool. I'm so grateful for that tool. We can use that tool anywhere. Yeah. And, and you know, where are we getting a lot of requests outside the <laughs> you know honestly i started hearing about it more so even, i get all the emails but from friends yeah i have a friend um up at hope hell's kitchen it's a little church in hell's kitchen in manhattan and he came out to visit me and he said wow it's amazing what the mennonites have done creating this curriculum about you know the abolition of uh, of really it leads into the militarization of policing and mass incarceration and all of these things. I have a friend, pastor of a little storefront Pentecostal church, and she knew about this work. And that's what got me fired up. I was like, what, what am I sitting here for? I got to lean into this. In Manhattan Mennonite, it may, there may be folks there who want to wrestle with this holy <laughs> curriculum. Yeah, and that's the other thing is that Mennonites are known for a lot of good curriculum out there, but our own people <laughs> don't take advantage of it. And, right. and, you know, and, you know, I wish they would. Melding curriculum and practice is one of our challenges. We're going to move into it. As Jason says, we're going to lean into that. Lean so into I, it. Promises so before us. Yeah. yeah. So, the, so the last question. 
I think we're the last question. The yeah. last question is two parts. The work of peace building often takes generations. First, how do you maintain that deep vision? And second, where do you find joy to sustain you in this work? Okay. Well, I think the generational work, that's important. And, and like for me, what I'm doing now is that I'm trying to let go of a lot of the stuff that I've done, but passing it on to younger people. Okay. And but being there to support them, if they have questions, if they need support, I want to be there for them as, you know, as long as I can to support them in that. But at some point, my generation has to let it go and allow that next generation to build upon it. They're going to have new insights. They're going to have new ways of seeing things. And they may have answers that we didn't have. Um, and we need to allow that them to do that. Um, so I think we have to be intentional about passing that. We cannot just pretend it's going to happen or hope it's going to happen. But I think every peacemaker should seek out two, three, four people that they want to mentor and eventually hand over yeah. what knowledge they have. Yeah. Let them decide what they do with that knowledge um but that they will continue that work um i think the second question about sustaining it's um i have i have probably used three main things one is when i was a lot younger and i was crazy in the sense of <laughs> Doing too many things, involved in too many issues all at once. Um, I, I eventually just had to get a spiritual director to center me, to slow me down, to make me think through what was realistic that I could really do and do well and let go of the things that may be important to me, but I just had to pray that other people were picking those pieces up, that I couldn't do everything. So that has been one thing that's been really helpful for me. The other thing is um, I did a three-day workshop on the Enneagram mm. and found out what I was on the Enneagram, which was, you know, I'm not afraid to say number eight. Uh, what, is the, what is the eight, Iris? Oh gosh, the eight is okay. The the good part of the eight, you could be Martin Luther King. The bad part of the eight, you could be Hitler. Oh my, <laughs> quite a quite a spectrum. <laughs> quite a, quite a spectrum. I think you definitely lean towards King. I see that, and that's back to that formation story. All the experiences that you've had have led you more to King, not to. I don't want to say other names. Yeah, but but yes. you know, it's that tendency. Uh, unfortunately, eights have the they're considered leaders, but they have a tendency to want it their way. Um, so I really have to watch that. I just have to. So so one of the things I learned about the Enneagram is that I have to lean to two, which is caring for people. Oh. Yeah. Because you know, when you want it your way. And if you're really focused to that, 
uh, you're not caring about what other people think or feel. So I have, I've had to work at leaning toward two to kind of balance. So I'm, you saw I'm not in the shadow side of eight. <laughs> so that's been a good tool for me. It's been a good measure. And the last thing is music. Um, I love music. Um, you know, my mom was a concert pianist. I grew up with music. Um, I played the guitar, so I use that as a way just to, yeah, relax and and in get away from all the stuff. So those are the kind of three things that really um, get me centered. Mm. I mean, and when I talk about, you know, the spiritual direction part, I mean, I also, you know, that has to do with, with scripture and, and, and centering on that and helping me look look through my life through those lenses. Um, so I found that really helpful with the spiritual director. Thank you. Iris, this has been such a great delight for me and I miss you more than ever now that I've had this hour with you. So uh, come here soon or I have to come here. I know. We've had a very meaningful and robust conversation and I wanna say inspirational as well. Amen, yes. um, we like to finish on a personal note, and all of this has been personal, but um, just a little fun. So okay. let's do a lightning round of either or so that we can learn a little bit more about you. Okay. On time, early, or running late? On time. Tea or coffee? Tea. Drama or comedy? Comedy drama. <laughs> I know that's a hard one. Comedy. Ocean or mountains? Ocean. Big party or small gathering? Small gathering. Sweet or salty? Sweet. Super strength or super speed? Super strength. Oh, all right. <laughs> Singing or dancing? Singing. Thank you, Iris, for playing our lightning round. Jason, let's do closure. Iris, thank you. This has been wonderful to gather and to listen to you and to have this conversation. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Um, just a quick shout out to my friend, Haki Octanis. He gave me the shirt today, Champion Pizza. Oh. He went from homeless on the Bowery to owning seven pizza shops in New York City, uh, some of the best pizza uh, in the Lower East Side. So thank you to all who tuned in for this conversation. If you want to hear more of these conversations, whether you're listening on a podcast or watching on YouTube, remember to like, subscribe, and share. And again, thank you for joining us for Teaching Peace. Walk in the way. Man. Thank you. Um.